If you're new, I'm Charlie, the lead pastor here, and really glad that you're with us. We are in the middle of a series we're doing out of Song of Solomon. We're talking about relationships. Before we get into week three of that, I kind of want to give a pre-announcement. Rachel will give you more details later, but this Friday is our men's retreat. We do it every fall. And I know that there's a situation where, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of weird things that enters into a guy's head when he thinks about all the reasons why he shouldn't go and all the reasons why he doesn't want to go and how awkward this and uncomfortable. Like, I don't, I just, all these things. I'm just telling you, as, as someone who has been a part of this for the last several years, um, it really is one of the, the most fun that we have here at the church. And it's also, I've seen some incredible relationships be built from this, and I've just become increasingly more and more convicted over the last several months just how important it is for guys to spend time with other guys. And so I just encourage you to overcome all of the fear, overcome all the anxiety, meet some great people. We're going to have some great content, just kind of learning how to be better men. It'll be a lot of fun. So again, Rachel will have more details on the sign-up, but I'm just telling you, whatever your hang-up is, please set it aside and come be a part of that uh, this weekend. So again, like so we're in week three here of Song of Solomon, and I'm going to let you know a little insider stuff here. So we're talking about conflict today, and, and I've got something to, to share with you that I need to post on some pastor message board, because you won't appreciate how crazy this is, but they would. We're talking about conflict in, in marriage and relationships today, and all week long, my wife and I did not have one fight. It's, it's unheard of. It's like I spent the whole week just waiting for it because I'm a patterns guy, and it always happens, right? Anytime it's like you're going to talk about healthy conflict, it's like then we're going to have a really unhealthy, awful fight, and then I've got to stand up here like a hypocrite for 30 minutes. And, and we didn't. It didn't. It was, it, was, it was amazing. And so I'm walking around with this dread, and Heidi said she had, she had no idea. She had no idea. She, she, she was like, really? That's how you are? It's like, that's how I'm at every year, Right? And, um, and I think part of it comes from this unhealthy thing that's in me that just says that conflict in and of itself is necessarily bad and should be avoided at all costs. That I'm just kind of this, this, this I'm just this, kind of this giant wad of feelings and, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm easily hurt and, and I don't, and I don't, and I want to protect myself and, and I don't want you to be mad at me. I don't want, and I just, I just, I want to avoid it. And, and, and if you don't know that, that's um, really unhealthy. Because we have this idea about conflict that, that, um, that, that only really, really bad people get in conflict. And if, and, and if you have it, it says something really bad about you. And I think we have all of these kind of misconceptions and, and this negativity that, that, that puts us where... We put up way too many defense mechanisms when there's a potential conflict. And then it is, in fact, those defense mechanisms that we're trying to keep conflict from happening that make the conflict worse. And before we even get to our passage here in Song of Solomon 5, uh, I just want to say this to kind of start the whole thing off, that conflict is normal and inevitable. It's normal. Everywhere you look, just, just do like this, everywhere you look, there are people that are, that are having conflict and all of the relationships in their lives that matter. It's very normal. And in fact, it's not just normal, it's inevitable. It will happen. If you have a relationship with another human, you will ultimately have conflict with that human. 
right? And so, and, and, and this is a very pastor move here, and the way that I can illustrate this to you is that Jesus had conflict with people. And not just with the Pharisees, like, like, the, like the, 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 the villains, if you will, of the, of the Jesus story in the Gospels. He had, he had conflicts with some of his best friends. He looked at one of his best friends in the whole world, Peter. He looked at him, called him Satan. So I don't know what kind of conflicts you have, but they're probably better than that. If they're not, if you call on somebody Satan, then I'm glad you're here today. So it would be really important for you to be here and listen to all of the things. Right? Because here's the deal. We, we think that conflict is only bad, but we need to understand that intimacy is built through understanding. I'm going to draw closer to somebody the more I know them, the better I know them, the more I know about the way that they think, the way that they feel. And one of the best ways that this happens is conflict. I'm learning some things about you, and in the process I'm learning some things about myself. Because you see it in kids, and it's, and it's a, like a normal... Thing when kids make this development. It's a little less so when we're still doing it, which we are. One of the things, there's a couple things that we learn in conflict that is very important, and each one of these things is going to sound crazy insulting when I say it, and you're just going to have to get over it. Okay? So the first one is, one of the things we learn in conflict is that there are other humans in the world that matter other than me. So this is like, all that matters are my feelings, you've hurt my feelings, and whatever I say next is fine. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. There are other humans here. And what they think and what they feel, that, that matters. Again, you see that development in kids. But we're the same thing. It's like we, we act and live as if we're the only ones that matter. And when we have these kind of natural conflicts, it reminds us, yes, I, I need to be having good relationships with other people. Other people matter. And the second also insulting thing is that we recognize in conflict that not everybody thinks like me. I think that you, you just think, well, you said this, and if I said this, this is what that means, this is what I would mean by it, so that's what you mean by it. If, 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 if I feel this way when this happens, you feel this way when this happens. And then suddenly you're like, you don't understand, like you start interacting with them, and you're like, wait, you're very different than me. And I know that both of those things that we know, we know that there are other people that matter other than ourselves, and we also know that people are very different than us, but we forget. We forget, and we become very inwardly focused, and conflict kind of brings some of that out and then allows us to know and interact with the person, whether it's a spouse, a friend, family member, operate with them in in a deeper, more personal way. All right, so conflict is normal, inevitable. And now we're going to see it here in Song of Solomon. If you were here last week, we had, it was it, it's a very steamy, racy kind of passage in Song of Solomon chapter 4 where it talks about their first sexual encounter after they're married. It's very intense, and now we've kind of moved on from there to, to their relationship after, after marriage. And as again, as we said, it is very normal and inevitable that this relationship, as, as cute as the romance was two weeks ago, as intimate and special as their, their night together was when they were married, conflict is both normal and inevitable, and even also for this relationship. So we're here in Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 2. And, and in the back and forth of who's talking, for the most part today, we're going to be listening to her. We're going to listen to the wife talk. Verse 2, Song of Solomon, chapter 5. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. 
Open to me, now, now he's, she's quoting him, Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now she's, this is her response to that. I have taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I have washed my feet, must I soil them again? <clears throat> now the interesting thing about Song of Solomon, again, I always felt this way in high school. I felt this way in college. I still feel a little bit like you're reading poetry and you just kind of read it. It's like, I don't know, I don't know what we're doing here, right? So this is very, it's all very poet, poet-y-ish, right? Um, but but so you can make sure we understand. So she's, she's asleep. She's, she's in bed asleep. Kind of some question here about whether or not some or all of this is happening in the context of a dream. Again, that comes from poetry's weird. But regardless, the situation here. And what she's experiencing, what he's experienced, I mean, there, there's some great principles to take from this. So she's asleep. He's been out working. And so then he comes to the door where she is. And what we've got here is he knocks on the door. And to sum it up for you, he says, hey, baby. Right? That's, that's, what, that's what he says. He's like, I've been working, and now I'm not working. And you're in there. I could also be in there. Right? And so then what she says is this. I already took off my robe and already washed my feet. Why, why am I, I going to get out of bed? Okay? Now, there's something that's really important for us to understand here. I want to take a little break here. Because the context later in this chapter will tell us who's at fault here. But I just want to make sure that we're clear. Because the context is going to tell us that she feels really bad about the way that she handles this. And she feels that she's at fault. But I want to make sure that we're clear. If all we know is husband initiates sex and the wife says no, it is not clear from that, just from those facts, who's at fault. I do not want anyone to walk away from this, this particular passage thinking that this passage thinks or that I think if a husband initiates sex and the wife says no, that that is inherently a problem for her. That is not the case. Any number of things could be happening. It could be he's being a jerk and doesn't have a real sensitive picture of what's going on here, of what the day was like, about what the week was like. It was really kind of an inappropriate time or moment for him to initiate. It could also just be nothing, right? Sometimes two people just miss each other. And again, this isn't just a sexual thing. This is in all areas of relationship. One person has expectations, another person has different expectations, and they just miss. And no one's at fault, per se. Or it could have been a very healthy, normal, in their rhythm time for him to initiate intimacy with her and her, and her telling him no. Her, her excuse was both flimsy and hurtful in the way that she handled it. And again, we're going to see that that's what she thinks. But you need to make, I just want to be very clear on that, okay? Let's be clear. All right. All right, so... Continuing on, here's what happens. Here's what Solomon does, verse 4. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Okay, so there's the door. He knocks on the door. Hey, baby, she says, I've got a headache, right? And, and, and... And so apparently the way this door is worked, he could reach his hand through this hole and probably could have unlocked the door, but instead he takes this perfume that is on his hand, reaches over and puts his kind of perfume on her side of the doorknob and walks away. I don't know if that's smooth. 
but it seems like he's, it's smooth what he's doing here, right? We'll talk about it a little bit what he does. And so then, then she gets up, and she's like, she like, I rose. Like, I didn't do that right. That's my fault. So she does. She gets up. She puts on the robe and gets her feet dirty, right? I rose, and then she puts her hand on, on the doorknob, and now she, she's, she's smelling his perfume, but he's not there anymore, which we may not culturally completely understand the nature of his reaction, but I want to at least say this about it. Like when, we, when, when your feelings get hurt, when it looks like something in a relationship is getting uncomfortable or whatever, let's, let's try this. Instead of instantly reacting, try thoughtfully responding. Instead of instantly reacting, I'm going to try thoughtfully responding. So in a normal world, hey, baby, I've got a headache. What's the normal, instantaneous reaction that a guy would have in that moment? What do you mean? What do you mean you've got a head? What do you mean your feet are down? I'll get a bowl of water. I'll wash your feet again. You ain't even got to put the robe on as far as I'm concerned. Get up. And now we're fighting. What she did may have been a little bit hurtful to him, and she recognized it as such, but we're not fighting yet, are we? And I would like to say that the main reason why we're not fighting at this point is because of what Solomon chose to do. He chose, instead of reacting to the hurt, he thought about it and had a more thoughtful response. Again, it's very culturally unusual for us, but apparently whatever it was he was doing, he was continuing to pursue her. So he's pursuing intimacy with her, She shuts him down, and he takes his myrrh and puts it on the doorknob and walks away. And so that is him continuing the intimate pursuit of her. I'm not going to react to the fact that you've rejected me. I'm not going to say anything hurtful back. I'm pursuing you. You said no. I'm going to continue to pursue you. And I'm going to give you the space that you say that you need and want. Which, again, even if we culturally don't understand that, I think at a minimum we need to admire that. Like how many of our interactions with our spouse, with our kids, with our parents, with, with, with really good friends would be incredibly improved if all you did was just take a second. And I'm not going to respond instantaneously from my feelings, but I'm going to take a minute and think, hey, what is really going on here? Now, Um, I would like to nominate myself at this moment for hypocrite of the year. Maybe not hypocrite of this year, because I'm actually doing a lot better in this over over this year. But I do have my 2018 hypocrite of the year trophy still displayed very proudly at home anytime I try to talk about this. Because again, that is my reaction. You hurt my feelings, and the equivalent of my reaction is, what is wrong with you? What is the deal with you? Why would you say that to me? Why would you do that? Why would you not do that? What is wrong with you instantly? Just without much thought because if you say something to me, I think I'm so smart, I think I'm so intuitive, I think I understand people so well that in one instant moment I can analyze exactly what you did, why you did it, and how that affects me. And I now have a well, in my mind, a very clear, well-thought-out rebuke of you and your behavior. But what if... What if my only application, and by me, I mean you, what, what if our only application from this was to say, 
the next time somebody says something that hurts my feelings, I'm going to be like, I may not know everything that's going on here. I'm going to ask a question first. Hey, what did you mean by that? I, I just heard you say this. Is that what you meant to say? And if that's what you meant to say, what did you mean when you said it? Like, I'm, I'm not trying to... Try, that, that's worth the price of admission, just that right there. We still got a few more minutes, but write that down. If we just said, I'm going to, instead of just react, I'm going to thoughtfully respond to this, we would eliminate the, the worst of our conflicts. At least we could de-escalate almost all of them, especially like the, like the small things. And I guess the small things, what did you mean by that? Or I'm going to, at the first moment, I'm just going to excuse myself from this conversation. It has been amazing to me over the last few months the number of conflicts that I've seen that would have turned into big conflicts with my wife that I avoided by not saying anything. I was like, she said something, and if I take it this way, it's hurtful, but it may not have anything to do with me. She may just kind of be battling something completely on her own, doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm going to give it a minute and just see what happens. And turns out, I find out later that she's really upset or tense about something else, doesn't have anything to do with me. And some unhelpful words came out of her mouth that I can be like, I say things I don't mean all the time. I'm just going to give her that one. And now we're not having conflict. Not having the worst kinds of conflict, right? But even in the big things, the things that there's no confusion about, no one is confused about that one of you is being ugly to the other one. Whether it's, again, whether it's marriage or another family member or a close friend. Even in those big things, what if we just said, I'm going to remove myself from this situation until I feel like I can get to a place that I can respond instead of react. I cannot tell you how much my life would improve if I could learn to have the courage to say, I don't think that I'm ready to talk about that right now. It's not that I don't want to talk about it right now. It's not that I don't have a list of things that I would be more than happy to say to you. Happy may not be the right word. Justified in saying to you. But what if I just waited and didn't say them? And waited till what tomorrow Charlie might think about it? Ever tomorrow Charlie's just he's just better. He's just better. But I don't give him permission to come out and 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 often the person that I'm in conflict with, whether it be my wife or whatever, they don't want to they don't want to do that. And so rather than taking the time to make sure we really understand each other, Things escalate. But again, that's not what Solomon did. And so now we have uh, his wife, and she is still trying to, she, she's trying to make this up to him. So she's pursuing him. She goes to the door. He's not there. Verse 6, chapter 5. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but he did not find him but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. 
Now, again, it's unclear to me, and, and it could go a couple of ways, about how literal, how metaphorical it is what she's talking about. But what she's saying is, she, I got up, I opened the door, he wasn't there. So then I went to go out and look for him. And I'm looking for him, and I can't find him. And so now she's out in the city looking for him. And there are watchmen, kind of the king's guards, who are in charge of making sure the city is safe. And they see someone they don't recognize out when they're not supposed to be wearing a cloak. And it says that, she, that, that these watchmen attacked her. They took her cloak and they, and, they, and they beat her. If that is literal, there's some dead watchmen, right? Because king, king going to find out and be like, you did what the who? And, and now they're done. It, 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 or it could just be a, a metaphor that she's using to describe what she feels. I go out there and I cannot find him. And as I'm thinking about what I did and how I hurt him, I, I, I feel beaten and bruised and I feel like I have been stripped by the watchmen, by the people who see things. And so the way that I would like to say it, again, whether this is is how literal this poem is, that instead of instantly reacting, try thoughtfully responding, but also this, we need to allow room for conviction to set in. Solomon gave her space by not reacting. And so now what happens to her is she has a minute to think on her own about what just happened. And because of that, she thinks, I did him wrong. And then she gets up, she tries to find him. And then we see, again, just this this torture that she feels. I I have done wrong by the one that I love. And, and she feels bad about it and is working to try to make that better. And so now, now there's room for her on her own to determine what she has done is inappropriate and allow God's conviction to come to her in God's timing when she's ready. But again, most conflicts don't go down this way, right? Hey, baby, I have a headache. What do you mean, headache? How does she respond to that? Imagine the most godly woman in the world, the most perfect woman in the world. What do you mean, headache? Now I'm going to put on my robe because I got some things I got to tell you, right? And so now we're fighting. Is there a moment in her when he says, what do you mean you won't wash your feet? That she's going to come back from that and be like, oh, you're so right. That excuse was so flimsy. I'm so sorry. Come on in and let's have a great time. That will will never happen because we fight now. But because he gave the space, I'm going to continue to pursue you and I'm going to let you have a minute. It gave the opportunity for conviction to set in. And so God, in his timing with her, was able to say, you kind of did your husband wrong there. And her heart becomes convicted in a way that it would never be convicted by an angry husband. The closest thing that Heidi and I had to a conflict this week was earlier, first part of this week, and I, I get into moods sometimes especially on Sunday night into Monday. I'm pretty tired after today, and, and, and I, get, I get real sensitive. And Sometimes I just feel like I just want to just start ranting about stuff. 
And I was, and, and my wife's really good all the way up until a point. You never know when the point is. She's all really great up to a point where she's just letting me just kind of just say stuff. Then eventually, inevitably, and, I'm, and most of the time, rightly, she'd be like, okay, well, that, not that, though, right? And, and she, she said something, and, and I reacted to it. Why can't you just let me just say things? Why can't I just, just what I feel? Why are you on to me about what I feel? Thankfully, in that moment, she was like, okay, this dude, he's not doing okay. And she didn't react. And then I was able to take a step back and say, I think I assumed too much about what you were thinking. When you said this, it made me think that you were telling me that there was only one right way for me to feel. And I don't like being told that there's only one right way for me to feel. I may be thinking unclearly, but what I heard you say was that this is the only appropriate way to feel. I don't like that. So that was not what I was trying to say to you. This is what I was trying to say to you. Okay, that makes sense. And the reason I say we didn't fight this week, because that doesn't count. That doesn't count. That's just kind of like normal. That's just like a normal thing. Not like what usually happens leading up to a sermon on conflict. Right? But the deal is, if we gave each other the space, and the only way we can do that is I'm going to respond rather than react, and then just allow normal, healthy, Holy Spirit processes to happen to bring the healing and conviction that are needed. Because, you know, you're not going to get someone any faster to real conviction. Again, whether it's a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, a sibling, whatever. You're not, your anger is not going to get them there any quicker. Your angry reactions are only going to bog down the process. All right, so she's still out looking in chapter 6, starting in verse 2, but now she's found him. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. Again, with the metaphors of this, this it, rather than him, her saying, hey, he's down in the garden. If you were here last week, we talked about gardens. It could be that they are already now having what is known in the world as makeup sex. Right? So we have already made up, right? And that, that's where he is. He is in his garden, which means that he is having intimate relationships with me, right? Verse 4, now he is talking to her. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Who all was here last week? Who all recognizes all of those words? Those are the same things. Man, if I want to rebuke Solomon at all, bro, you always got to have new material. You can't just keep bringing out old material. It doesn't work. You got to have new material. But there's an intentionality, I think, in the way that this, this poem is constructed and, and why, he would, why the same thing would be said again. Because what he is saying is that at this moment, he feels about her the same that he did at their best, most intimate moment. We had this peak of intimacy. And, and, and then we had this moment. 
and now we are back right where we used to be. And we'll say that this way, that in addition to not reacting but instead responding, allowing room for conviction, that we need to pursue and give reconciliation. And reconciliation has the idea of we were here, then we fell, and we get back to that spot. No one in this passage says that they are fine. No one is fine. And it would be, in, it would be inadequate to say that they are now at peace, because peace means they're not fighting. It's not that they're not fighting. It's their intimacy was as strong as it has ever been. She goes to try and find that. I want you like I did before. I want us to have that relationship like we did before. I'm sorry for the thing that held us back. And then he graciously grants it to her. And now their relationship is as good as it ever was. Again, that is something very different than what most of us would call how we finish arguments and conflicts. Usually it's somebody's fine who isn't and someone who definitely isn't who just accepts that. And what happens is, okay, we were fighting here, we were good here, and then we fought to here, and then we got okay. And these things, rather than building trust and building intimacies, begin to erode it away because we're not... We're not working hard enough. We're settling for okay and we're settling for fine. We're settling for not yelling at each other anymore. And I understand, I understand that this is immensely complicated. I do. Anytime I talk about forgiveness and reconciliation and healing, there's just a lot going on. And um, a lot of us get stuck because we've had or at least believe that we've had kind of experiences with a spouse, with a friend, with a parent or somebody that, is not, that does not fall into that category. The relationship is now irreparably bro- broken because of whatever it is that's happened. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but I will say a couple of things to that. One, 90% of you who think that the thing that you are dealing with is so big that your relationship is irreparably damaged, 90% of you are wrong. You have decided that because you've decided that your feelings trump everything and because you're not willing to work hard enough to bring forgiveness. You're just wrong. It's not that big of a deal. And if you told that story to someone who was a neutral counselor, you would find that out. Most of us think that we are being righteous and holding on to like deep hurt when really we're just being petty. Now, but what about the other 10%? There are some real damaging hurts that we have decided as a society that are big enough, huge enough, where the re- restoration of intimacy and real reconciliation are impossible. And I'm telling you, I've heard many of these stories. I've heard some of the worst stories that there are, the worst damage that two people can do to each other. I've heard these stories. And I have also seen in these stories people willing to do the extra work that it takes to bring real healing to the relationship. And I've seen God bring new levels of intimacy and closeness in relationships that were before unheard of because they were willing to do the work it required to overcome the real hurts of life. And so wherever this person is that you're estranged from, whatever whatever conflict and pain has been stirred up in this, my prayer and our hope would be is that you would be willing to do the work to have reconciliation because I think too many of us in our relationships as we've gone through conflict 
have settled for something short of what God wants for us. We've settled for okay, we've settled for fine, we've settled for relative peace, and we're not pursuing real reconciliation. So as we have our time of response, as always, lots of places to respond in the back. Our prayer team is available, there's prayer candles, there's the cross, there's communion, we have an opportunity to give. Let's just ask God to take that thing that's in stirring in us, the hurt that's there, and give us the courage then to face it, admit it, and to pursue reconciliation with, with, with whomever we're talking about. And if you get to the point to where you feel like you just can't, reach out to somebody. There's lots of people here in our church who would love to help you walk through the process. Again, talking about marriage or another family or some kind of close friendship. We would love to be helped. Sometimes we just need help. Because it's not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. Reconciliation is not easy. But it is what God has called us to in our relationships. And it's where life and real intimacy and relationships happen. Let's pray. God, I thank you. And God, I'm just mindful of this moment as your son Jesus and the love that you showed for us when our sin had done real damage to our relationship with you. And God, you responded with pursuit, with the sacrifice of your son, and real reconciliation for us with you. And God, I pray that we would take that model into our marriages, our relationships with our kids, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our best friends, everywhere that we go. That we would be people who bring healing and life and grace and forgiveness to the relationships that we have. That God, we would not avoid conflict, but we would graciously step in and bring healing and life. And we love you, God, and we are so thankful for your son and the model that he showed. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.